2: Hello welcome to the Royal Ensemble Club talk show in association with motorsport. I'm Jack Phillips, Digital Edge for Motorsport, and I'm joined by Matt Oxley, MotoGP Correspondent, and Steve Parrish. Multiple national motorcycle champion, uh, team owner, European truck champion, British champion and broadcaster, so quite busy. So.
0: Jack of all trades, master yeah. of none, I think Matt would agree with that.
2: <laughs> and you two know each other, you go back quite a way and... Yeah, we do. I don't think we kind of knew
0: each other in the early days actually. No, because actually I knew too famous. Well I don't know about that, but I did know one of your main competitors who didn't like you, obviously. Who was that? Harry Woodland. Oh right. <laughs> yeah, he would have he would have disliked you because I think you might have beaten him in one of the TTs and didn't yeah, you. Yeah. You two were kinda neck and neck We were, him, yeah, 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 mm. yeah. Yeah. So, so I was on the opposite camp actually to Matt in yeah. the
2: early days. And opposite floors. Uh, in Macau? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
0: I guess so. There was a lot of rivalry went on there as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, some um, sort of
2: a, a drainpipe. Yeah, there was uh, wheels
1: yeah, coming yeah, off. Yeah, that's and... the kind of... Um, well, we were banned from Macau, weren't we? Yeah. yeah.
0: Were you yeah. as well? I know I was. Yeah, yeah. well, I didn't even dare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was, but I'm allowed back now, <laughs> because it was then Portuguese own, and once the Chinese took it back... That it, kind It of started up. with
1: um, me and my teammate, Vesa We We realised we were staying in the room above... Stavros in the hotel, so we shimmied down the drain pipe one, one the first evening, I think, and, and, and stole everything out of his hotel room yeah. leaving just his because it was first practice the next morning, so we thought it'd be a bit too mean to take his leathers and helmet, so we left his leathers and helmet and um, so that was very funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, yeah it's just all very puerile, but there you go that 's what we were doing and uh, obviously Steve got to hear about it and um he, uh, we were about to drive off this little island back onto the mainland over this, the tallest concrete bridge in the world. Mm, it was The longest there, and, to, and tallest, or something, to like get junks un, to get the junks under it, just off Macau. And uh, we're just about jumping into our minimo. We all had every team had a minimo, one of those little minis, open, open cedar minis. And uh, we were just about to get into the minimo, and hotel staff said, "No, no, you mustn't. you mustn't drive it. You mustn't drive it." And We said, "Why not?" And Steve. And presumably his mates, because I'm not sure if he can work a spanner, okay, <laughs> had um, okay, okay. <laughs> taken every wheel nut off to like the last millimetre of thread. And <laughs> 200 yards later, we, we were, would have been climbing up this huge, great concrete bridge to go over, no doubt, shark infested waters. Mm. And uh, so that was the kind of the sort of stuff. So
0: it was the hotel concierge see. I have to go and see now, is it? I've got to track him down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ruin really save my life. Yeah, because I must admit, I was going to drive back that next having a look over the edge to see where he was. <laughs> <worked. laughs>
2: Was that the same year as the famous fireworks? Do you know, I th- it was. It was, yeah, yeah it was, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That was another situation that sort of went a bit wrong, um, because the reason it went wrong is I should have been the getaway driver, but the action took place in such a spectacular way that I stayed to look at the action, and that's where it all went horribly wrong. And yeah. it also went horribly wrong because the chief of police was also in the establishment that the fireworks went off in, and uh, he shouldn't have been in there in the first place, I don't yeah. think, getting a backhand or a front hand or whatever he was getting. Um, and his, his driver was at the bar watching everything that went on. So it was our own fault, really. It was it sort of exacerbated by the fact that uh, we didn't drive away quick enough. But it was very embarrassing because I hadn't been long married and I had to phone my wife to say, I'm in, I'm in prison for
1: blowing up a brothel, It's kind of an awkward well, situation. In Apparently you got yeah. out of that night. Well, I, I, I had uh, food poisoning or something, so I didn't go out that night, so I was very oh, that, lucky because my, my, <laughs> my team manager was involved and I was going to be with them I w- and we were just going out for a, for a, for a laugh. You know, the last night before we went home and I got Mike Trimby on the phone at two in the morning in the hotel saying, what the have you been up to? Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm in bed with food poisoning and, and uh, got up the next morning and the police basically locked us all in the hotel. They wouldn't let us leave because um, Stavros <laughs> had kind of got wind of what was going on, had run out the back of the hotel, jumped into a passing cab, got to the the, the, um, the ferry place, the hydrofoil in Macau, and paid somebody double their ticket price to jump on the next hydrofoil and, and uh, scarpered to, to Hong Kong. So basically the police, the Macau police, kept all the, rest, the whole rest of the Macau contingent, which was mm. probably 25 riders, mechanics, everything, all holed up in this hotel. Waiting for Steve to to, to, to return, return and in fact to face to face yeah. justice. I think in the end what happened was
0: Mike Trimby negotiated for you lot to go, but the police impounded all the bikes and the cars, all the Formula Three cars that were probably worth millions and millions of pounds. They impounded the whole lot. Let you let you guys go. They came back, saw me sat at the other end in Hong Kong with my gin and tonic, thinking it was a great giggle. Whereupon Mike Trimby insisted and kind of gave me no option but to go back across to give myself up and meet up with what the was rest of the threat.. People. Well, the fact that they'd impounded all the bikes right, and cars right. and everything else, and told me that they just wanted a, an hour of my time to interview me. Whereupon when I got the other side, because I'd given my I'd had two passports, so I gave them my old passport that had my American visa in, so they thought they'd got me trapped, but I had my new one to get off the island or to get off of Macau. Um, and when I get back they'd blown my picture up, which was quite funny. I wished I'd had a phone with me, a camera with me at that time, because there was a big blown-up picture of me saying wanted, do not let this man off, and I'd already gone by then. So anyway, I went back and uh, it was a slightly more serious incident than I'd first envisaged, because they tried to charge us for their loss of earnings for that night, which was ridiculous, because it was full up. They'd already taken their earnings.
1: (laughs) They, they, um, Yeah, it all ended with uh, Howard Lees, may he rest in peace, um, my team manager taking the rap, because Steve Parrish was too important, and the other man involved in the... uh, (laughs) In the events was Paul Butler, who was team manager of Marlboro Team Roberts at the time, Mm. and um, became race director of MotoGP. So he was quite an important guy. So they, you two, got to Scarpa, and and Howard took the rap and spent a week in jail in in Macau, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had
0: about three days though. They were great times, yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, And the other fairly interesting thing, I'm not sure where it went to, but the van that was the getaway driver at the time got impounded and then it missed its ferry going back and whatever and, and so it was cheaper. We ended up buying the van, so I now still own a van in Macau, I believe, for that particular time. It was something like, I don't know, $2,000 to buy it or the rental was 6000 so we, we now own a van out
1: there, so whether or not it's still running, I don't know. At well, least you can go back
0: now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but back They now. used to
1: give each team a mini moat, which was obviously like these open minis. And, I mean, it's, I feel somewhat ashamed about all the stuff that we got up to, but it, just, it was just what you did when you were 25, and it was the 1980s, and you were a motorbike racer. Have and, you changed uh, then? <laughs> like, I haven't. <laughs> uh, kind of. Um, and we used to go into these uh, fireworks shops, and there were many. Fireworks were banned in Hong Kong, uh, but they weren't in Macau. So we used to go into these huge fireworks shops and buy these bangers, which would be 300 bangers, all wrapped up in one, which is what they used on this on the big night out, but we used to buy load up the the, the, the minimockes with these and then drive around Macau because there wasn 't a lot of racing or practice to be mm. done. it was basically a, a holiday race really drive around in Macau and looking for other teams driving around in their mini and then trying to sneak up behind, behind them and and then come jump out and go past them and light light this huge three hundred firecracker thing mm. and lob it into the uh, into the mini Minimo and then, and then watch them disappear in, in the biggest cloud of smoke you'd ever seen and, and drive off thinking it was funny. Mm, mm. Um, that's well it was, what it was very very funny yeah.
0: uh, and uh,
2: it was absolutely
0: hilarious. So but we, anyway, all times are in the past, cause I don't think it goes on anymore now
2: unfortunately. No. Well Rossi this week said being a MotoGP rider is boring now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: well, I can imagine it is. I mean it's very profitable if you're as good as Valentino Rossi and you have great times and you travel around and you jet and everything else but um, you're probably not going to sit down and laugh about what went on during that period of time because not no. a lot does go on. I'm from an era when PC stood for
2: Pulling Crumpet and that's kind of <laughs> how it was then. <laughs> is there any, anyone on the grid that you
1: think would? Not anymore, no. no it's not, not anymore. actually.
0: Uh, but I, are they allowed to? I, I, the think,
1: I think Rossi still likes a good night out um, but he would have to choose them uh, fairly... You know, I think during the season they'd probably be fairly rare. Yeah. But he'll he he likes a good. He'll stay up all night and get pretty yeah. tanked up and have a good time. You know, and and wow, you know they've got a lot of stress to to get rid of. They they need to do that stuff. Mm. But you know that that's the kind of once in a blue moon now. Whereas back, you know, the further you go back in history, you know, the more often they were doing it. I mean, I, I remember, um, yeah. So Rossi's saying it's more boring because you know they don't have a minute to themselves you know and I'm not feeling sorry for them Mm. but I'm just saying it's not as much fun as it used to be to Mm. be a racer you know you they spend more time looking at computer screens than they do riding the bikes and when they're not you know every minute of every day when they're at a racetrack is is accounted for you know in the old days you'd do practice you'd have a chat with your engineer go back yeah to your caravan hang out with your mates and have a Mm. laugh wouldn't you basically yeah yeah Yeah, and then maybe go out and have a few beers that night
0: undoubtedly corky ballington said always drunk a, uh, when he won four world Championships. had a bottle of red wine every night because he felt he'd be better the next day having slept through the night because otherwise he'd be way yeah. too nervous yeah, exactly. so his bottle of red wine put him to sleep and he exactly. felt better for, for having yeah. done that because the fact was and i think probably why we had more fun was because we were more likely to die so it was kind of living for the moment and i'm not qualified to say it but it was a bit like a war zone we were going through in that period where grand Prix, a lot of them 50 percent of them were on road circuits and not at all uncommon to lose four or five people during the season, and it would be that driving out the paddock. And the worst part was seeing the van and caravan still there and the the weeping girlfriend or wife and everything else that went with it. So you might as well live it to the best. And, of course, we had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to have fun, whereas, as Matt rightly says, you know, Monday would be back in the gym, Tuesday would see the dietician, Wednesday the psychiatrist, Thursday the press officer, (laughs) practice, qualify, race... Monday, you know, it just goes on and on, it's constant. And so there's no time to have any fun. And if you do have any fun someone's got a phone or a camera with them, it's on social network and you're seen as not being responsible sportsman that you're supposed to be. So uh, they can keep
2: it. Yeah, so back then were you going around Europe, basically, and coming back to England after every race or were you, would you go? Uh, depended, uh, you, you
0: you travelled together, A lot of you, there'd be convoys of trucks and caravans and people stopping in campsites wherever down on the coast in the Adriatic coast or something like that, then you'd probably have to come back to race in England or at Shime or Zanvoort or somewhere to earn your money because there wasn't a great deal of finances that went with the Grand Prix. You're, your income came from the international races which were gauged by how well you done in the World Championship. So you did the World Championships, got you 250 Swiss francs or whatever it was, which was nothing, didn't put enough petrol in Barry Sheens Rolls-Royce, I know that, um, the, the amount that it got, but when you came back you were given a nice brown envelope with 10,000 quid in it or something to turn up at Brands Hatch at every meeting or at Chime or international races. So that was where your income
1: came from. It was your kind of lost leader. Grand Prix, Very much so. you, had yeah. to, you had to Good at Grand Prix to get Mm. the money to go elsewhere, didn't
0: you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that that was so we did travel a hell of a lot. And and I would say 90% of us would be in the van with the mechanic, with the girlfriend, with whatever, towing a caravan and travelled around together, and that was how it was done. I spent I spent thousands and thousands of miles and days and days asleep in a caravan being towed by a van around Europe. I mean, if you said that to someone now, they, it's illegal, you can't do that, it's dangerous. But, you know, I mean, how we didn't end up careering across some field without off the caravan come off the back of the truck,
2: I don't know. I guess didn't. what it has done is given you a book's worth of Yeah, stories.
0: I mean, I could have probably, if I'd have concentrated more, won a few more races and things, but I wouldn't have had a theatre show to travel around the country with or a book to write, I don't think. Or I, I might have done, but it would have been as boring mm. as batshit. Yeah. Mm. The, the,
1: the other thing that Rossi said at Aston was was, you know that racing itself isn't as romantic as it was, and 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 you know, being Rossi, he's you know very intelligent and very good with words, and and that was just the perfect word to use as well, because, I mean, he was talking about just being at races, not being rom- romantic, because you're just working, working, working. Mm. But that's true of the whole thing. You know, back then it was more romantic. Oh, you know, you, you you um, you, you travelled around Europe and you stopped. By a lake, and you stopped by the beach, and, and then you went to the next race, and
0: and and the, the all the, I mean, it sounds wrong, but all the pretty girls in the town would come to the paddock, and they were allowed in the paddock, and they could wander around and sit and have a glass of wine with you, and like say it was, it was the it was known as the Continental Circus, and that's exactly yeah. what it was. It, because was. it was a circus it was going from town going to town, yeah, yeah. And you know, you went back, and in Italy, you probably met. Um, Isabel or something, and then you went to Holland and you met, whatever. And that was sort of how it was. And an awful lot of riders from my era ended up with wives and girlfriends from mm. those particular countries you traveled Quite
1: travel often to. they're nurses, they'd met in the hospital. That, that, exactly yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or at someone's funeral or something like w- that. When, yeah, when we were travelling around Europe in the 80s doing endurance racing, was, we, had, we didn't have a caravan, we had a, we had a truck, a big truck that was half converted into uh, living quarters. With a special um, big red diesel tank. Yeah, b- 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 possibly, possibly. Um, and we used to basically buy a load of duty free on the on, on, on the on the uh, on the boat on the boat, and and just be dry, run a circular system in the truck. They basically you sat in the in, in in the back and drank, and then once you got to the front as kind of third kind of navigator, and then you and then the guy in, who was driving would move into the back and start drinking, and that, and then you would by the time you got to the his two hours his two hours you were sober again and, then, and then it just yeah, basically went all story. the way yeah. driving for 24 hours yeah. and that was very that. common and, it lit, um, and you
0: wouldn't stop no. Again, we'd, no, exactly. we'd yeah, there was no stopping. You just jump drove. out of the driver's seat, and someone would hang on the steering wheel, and someone exactly, else would yeah. slide back. No, we used in to li- wait, literally don't. do that. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. no, we did yeah. as well. We had a better. In, in fact, even when I became a team manager, we had another system where we had the uh, the horse box. If you remember, the uh, Loctite tight Oakley horse box, which had a mirror behind the driver's seat, and if you started nodding off, and you could see someone would, you had to drive by looking in the mirror to see how far you could go, and that would keep you awake. <laughs> so everything would be back to front, and I used to have Terry Ryan and Rob McElhane, people like that doing, so you'd be looking in the mirror and you had to see who could go the furthest by, not, by trusting the mirror, and that would
2: wake you up. Yeah,
0: so, wow. madness really. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But we're all
2: still here, ish, ish. Maybe it's not such a bad thing Mm. after all. I mean,
1: the the thing is that it's it's been moving that way forever. It's not something that's just happened recently or just happened. You know, the people, I can remember when I started covering Grand Grand Prix as a journalist in the late 80s, journalists then saying it was like John Brown would be saying, oh, it's boring now. You know, whereas I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, and we were still all going out and having a laugh with the riders and, um, and, and, doing research recently you know you realize that in the sort of 20s and 30s they were drinking while they were racing mm. you know they would come in for a pit stop and had a, have a brandy they get refueled and have a brandy and they'd carry on so yeah, it's- y- you know and and the 60s 70s uh, you know organizers would complain that the reason the riders were getting killed was because was, was they were going out on the lash the night before the race obviously wasn't true it might have been in some cases but you know professionalism has a way, and money has a way of, you know, if you want to win, you've got to work harder than the other guy. Mm. And then so you work harder, and then the next guy comes on, right, I've got to work harder than him. And, and, and gradually that just squeezes yeah. everything out of it, apart from spending your entire life searching for more performance, whether that's through teaching your engineer, through, through talking to your engineer, through going to the gym, mm. blah, blah, blah. And, and, the, and the bikes are also so much hard, more physical to ride now, much harder to ride yeah, because, probably. The G-forces and the grip are much, much, much higher than they ever were. So, so, you know, you have to be hugely strong to hang on. You know, you think back, Barry, he was smoking, what was he on, 20 a day? Ah, oh, 40, 40. 40 a day. I mean, you would not be able to ride a Grand Prix bike on 40 a day now. You no. know, you would not be able to uh, do but
0: it. But as Matt he says, it was all about weight, really. We just had to be under 10 stone. And I remember not eating to get, it was like a jockey. Because uh, the bikes, it, you needed the same, I don't, i think there's any less skill involved i think there was no. less physical as we said no brakes no tires that had any grip and everything else but also going on to that matter is how on earth can we ever find another Character in sport in general not just motorcycle racing because probably by the age of eight years old you've been slotted into some academy You don't have a normal life now all the people I know modern-day racers have not they've not I don't know how you got about it, but it was me riding around in a field I did an apprenticeship saved up bought a motorbike I had a normal life did all the things fag behind the bus shelter and stuff like that So my life was fairly normal then I started going out and racing motorcycles, but nowadays that person is usually filtered out of the normal system, put into an academy, and they don't really have a proper life. What I call a a life where you're going to live it to Mr Average. Um, And and interestingly, just reading the other day, Scott Redding, couldn't believe he wrote it himself, but he said, I think I'm I'm as dumb as a donut." And I could never hold down a proper job because yeah. I don't know anything but riding yeah. a motorbike, which is kind of sad if his career is about to come to an end because he sure. could easily end up on the I, I do
1: find that endearing about Scott, that he's, he's very... Um, <laughs> Open and truthful. <laughs> <but> <laughs> honest. Yeah. Um, I'm not no, sure he no, should well, be I, writing his own <laughs> CV, but anyway. But he, he you know, he, uh, there are still characters, but they're, you're right. I mean, but they're not the same as they were before because, as you say, they're, they're, they're not allowed to be because they've been doing this since they were three four years old I think Rossi without a doubt is started later than any of the other guys I think he started racing mini motor when he's 10 because mm-hmm. he'd been doing go-karts before mm-hmm. then but you know there's not a guy out there who wasn't I wouldn't think probably racing by the time he was five mm-hmm. and I've been to Spain at racing schools run by um, Lorenzo's dad Chicho and they've got two-year-olds riding mm-hmm. around on mini motorbikes bikes and and yeah. you know what do you do you know no uh, no, no sure that's why you say you've got to be fit in you know, spanish and, and that's you know you look at boxers bronx boxing their way out of the bronx or whatever it's a similar kind of thing you know that this is their chance and reading was very much like that he yeah. comes from a you know pretty pretty um you know in no no silver spoons in his mouth you know really came from absolutely nothing and his family decided what well, his dad and his uncle decided this is what he's going to do this is his way out yeah. Of, 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 of the jungle, or whatever you like, want to call it,
2: you know. Well, um, so your your career started with racing as Ago and and then you ended up into the superstars of the eighties. So did you notice that change?
0: Yeah, I think in my in the early period, you have to remember that my mentor was Barry Sheen. So whatever he did, I did, and I did smoke the odd fag and do the odd, you know, naughty thing that seemed to go on. But then I think the Americans turned up, and that star that was probably the first of the changes, even to extent a lot of people don't often realise it, they, they say Kenny Roberts won the world championship. Pat Hennon was the guy that kind of was the first American that came into came in to be a teammate, and all of a sudden we saw Pat getting his trainers on and going for a run, and <laughs> had a ball worker or something like that. And <laughs> what the hell's going on here? So he probably started to make us think. Mm, you know, when he he was leading the world championship before he had his huge crash in '78 at uh, at the TT. Uh, so he was probably the start of the changes. It didn't, it didn't. It wasn't a wildfire going through, but everyone started to realise that Jesus, maybe we should do a little bit more. Maybe we should. And Barry actually, I know he smoked forty fags, but he actually was quite fit, mm. and um, would always tell people he was as fit as anyone and prove it by swimming further underwater and everything else like that. But motorcycle racing, probably more than most sports, it's psychological. And so if you feel, if you're sat on the grid and you felt you haven't lifted as many weights as the next guy or cycled as far as the next guy, you're beaten probably before you start. And that's that was when it all kind of started happening. Yeah. So I think probably late 70s, yeah. early 80s, people started to take it slightly more seriously. And then
1: every new guy that came, you know, Kenny was, I, I don't think he was a huge fitness fanatic, but, but when, when, Lawson came, mm. he really upped it, the yeah. sort of fitness thing. And then, and, and then um, when Rainey came as well, and, and then when Dewan came, and they all right. just upped the ante. And like I said, you know, if you want to hang with those people, you know, and Dewan just took it to yeah. pitiless, kind of. Um, you know, he, he obviously, because he was so badly injured when he crashed at Aston in 92, he had to, you know, nearly lost his leg as a result. He really had to fight physically to come back from that. Yeah. And I think after that, he just became... Yeah, Mick <laughs> just was a machine. He, he, he just worked harder than ever. And he just yeah. wanted, he didn't want to win, mm. he wanted to just destroy mm. everyone. Yeah. And, and he knew that just it was his attitude, his physical preparation, everything that just when he went to the grid, literally everybody knew they didn't have a chance. Mm. Sure. sure. Yeah.
0: But actually, in the latter stages, With the amount I've been involved in MotoGP and watching uh, Valentino Rossi, come in the early days, Rossi didn't do a hell of a lot. No, no. He really didn't, because he was so brilliant, so good, and was so capable and so young, it all came quite naturally. But we saw a change when he stopped winning world championships quite easily. Bam, I saw him in the gym in the morning.
2: We had a question actually from a reader, uh, a guy called called Nick. Um, On those lines, do you think Marquez is the greatest of all time? If not, who? I don't think I mean, anyone don't like in...
0: this question. Sorry, to, I, I'll, I'll ask... to you
2: because Matt hates this question.
0: So. okay, um, <laughs> I don't think anyone can ever say who's the greatest rider in the world because I don't think you can have any transgressions through uh, eras. I never saw Jeff Duke ride properly. I didn't see Mike Howard ride properly. Uh, I did see Agostini, and I saw Barry Sheen, I saw Kenny Roberts, and everything else like that. I think you can only ever say who is the greatest of that era, and I would say Mark Marquez. Depending where you're changing the era. Personally, if I had to see one race ever, I would pay a lot of money to have seen Casey Stoner and Mark Marquez race against one another because they did cross over and it would just be who crashed first, I guess. Um, but Mark Marquez of this last five years is probably the greatest I've seen, yeah, since Casey Stoner stopped. But that's why I'd love to see that racer because I thought Casey Stoner was the fastest I'd ever seen.
2: Um, A related question, are there any circuits you raced on which are no longer on the calendar but would be enjoyed by today's riders? They wouldn't consider any
0: of the circuits (laughs) I ever raced on um, because they were all ridiculously unsafe. We used to think somewhere like Silverstone was probably one of the safest but we we sort of somehow managed to blank out that two by two or four by four wooden stakes with Um, wire fencing to catch you so you didn't hit the solid code. So it just, it slowed you down by breaking your limbs, basically, so you didn't die, but you still ended up with broken arms and legs and things like that. Um, But I can't imagine that. Uh, I guess the one circuit they might have raced at that we did uh, was San Carlos in Venezuela, because it was just a ribbon of tarmac in the middle of a desert. Uh, with tin sheds that we used to have to get changed under and it was about 40 degrees. But there was nothing to run into because it was all just desert. But I'm not sure if they would like the facilities. There's that a good put. story from
1: San Carlos, I think, of Mick Grant, who was hurt in practice or something, was t- carted off to hospital, which, you know, and the hospital wasn't mm. the best in the world. No, and, I went to and it. And he sort of, uh, he, um, he got out of there as quick as he could, but he was only wearing his underpants. And he <laughs> <laughs> had it should have Back to the circuit, wearing his underpants. <laughs> oh, mine. I mean, just, that's just how racing's changed. But, but you know. even worse, uh, on the medical
0: side, uh, my mechanic, 1978, I think, Martin Brookman, big tall Martin Brookman, had horrendous stomach pains. And it was probably, it almost certainly was something yeah out there because it was disgusting. And he, we took him to the hospital because he was in absolute agony screening. It could have been a kidney stone or something like that. But the doctor, with a fag on and dogs walking around in there wanted me to pay $500 like, to take his kidneys out. He said he had a kidney infection, they had to take his kidneys out. There's nothing wrong with him. Four days later, he was as good as gold. <laughs> but they just wanted the $500 and that was, that was, it. That was how it was. Wow. We also went to the circuit one morning slightly early in San Carlos um, and because my bike had played up the night before, they used to throw us out of the paddock at 6 o'clock and you weren't allowed back in at 8 o'clock but we went at 7 o'clock to get in there thinking, what's the difference? There was a guard there with a machine gun and we pushed and pushed and pushed said we're going in, we're going in and he went (laughs) cocked his machine gun and we said we'll wait till 8 o'clock and they would have shot something. There's
1: um, just one last San Carlos story, when uh, Kawasaki entered the World Championships in 1978 they um, turned up, this is Stuart Shenton with Court Ballington and all that lot um, turned up at San Carlos for for the first Grand Prix or second Grand Prix there First in 77. Yeah, yeah, so the second Grand Prix there, and the, went to the hotel. The next morning went to the airport to, um, to collect their bikes, went to the customs and so on. And uh, the people said, no, your bikes never arrived. And they had a, um, a guy, kind of a Kawasaki employee, to look after them. He said, I think I might know where your uh, bikes are. And this is all completely true. Stuart Shenton, the mechanic, told, you know, God's honour and all that. Uh, so he says, I think I might know where your bikes are. I know where your bikes are. So he's back in the car, reaches under his seat, gets a gun out, gets a pistol out, sort of makes sure it's got bullets in it, puts it on the dash. And uh, Stuart says, Is there going to be any shooting? And uh, he says, Well, there may be. And off they go down the back street of um, San Carlos, uh, s- spinning into this um, depot, big depot. With uh, this guy waving the gun out the window, saying, "Give us the bikes, give us the bikes," and uh, and it was it was the Yamaha importer, uh, and th- and they and they had t- hidden the bikes, they'd stolen the bikes, obviously paid the customs people, and stolen all the factory Kawasaki's and hidden them in this thing. And and you know, would they have been found otherwise? I don't know, maybe not. And they got the bikes back. But funny enough, the, 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 the Yamaha importers was owned by the Ippolito family, and, and um, Mr. Vito yeah. Ippolito is now president of the I FIM. Yeah. FIM so. Venimotos, <laughs> it. Yeah. it was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, we actually, funny enough, you should say that we did exactly the same with the
0: Yamaha team bikes. I remember Barry giving 200 bolivars, which was 20 quid or something, to the customs guys to make sure that the Yamaha team bikes were way, way at the back. And they didn't get there until the night before practice. I know they lost a day trying to yeah. find their bikes.
1: Which again is all coming back to the romance, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you were one of those mechanics or one of those riders, this would have been a complete nightmare. But, you know, what a great story. Here we are 30, 40 years later still talking about it. You know, if, if they'd all just turned up and gone out in FP1 and everything had worked you know there wouldn't be a story so that you know motorsport and, but any sport and, and, and any any area of life has changed like that because professionalism yeah. tends to suck those things out don't they? They, they, it leaves no room for having a good time basically no. you know. yeah so if you go back to your own career um, Barry Sheen in
2: your book says that you could have been a world champion but for the sort of, I guess antics off track yeah, I'm not sure if I could have been a world champion. I, I think I, when I raced
0: against the likes of Barry Sheen, Kenny Roberts and everything else, I think I probably had their speed at times, but I didn't have their determination. My self-belief was lacking and I was also allergic to pain at a fairly early age. And, and I really did have a fairly light fuse fitted. I didn't want to stick my neck out. I knew my limitations and I could beat Kenny and beat Barry on the day, but I couldn't beat them for a championship. Uh, and I think people saw that in me and I didn't get the bikes that they got and that's a very easy excuse to make but I think I've come across a lot of very, very talented riders over the years but if you don't apply yourself correctly, you don't necessarily get the equipment. I was a reasonably good motorcycle racer that didn't have enough self-belief and determination. I think that's the lacking. I think my natural speed was there um, and I was very proud to finish fifth in the World Championship in 1977, bearing in mind, this sounds a bit like Wayne Gardner, doesn't it, making an excuses <laughs> and everything but, but bearing in mind that I didn't know any single track I went to, the tracks were sometimes ten miles long, like the Spars and the Finlands and the places like that, I had to learn them and I always qualified sort of at least half, three quarters of the way down the grid and ended up fifths and sixes and everything else, so I was learning the race track as it went along. Um, and I think probably had I stayed with Suzuki in 78, things could have got a lot better, But ifs and buts. But I don't really have any serious regrets about it. Uh, I had an awful lot of fun. Uh, I have a lot of fun talking about what I used to do um, off the track probably more than on it. So, I don't know, Like it's, it's rather sad when you have people around you going oh but if only this had happened and the bike hadn't have broken here and the tyre hadn't have gone off here and i am sick to death of reading books that are like that hence yeah. my book is nothing like that
2: yeah well, i was going to ask if you think it would have changed if you had you won at silverstone so maybe you...
0: <laughs> yeah i think possibly it would for a start i wouldn't have got fired at the end of 77 because i would have ended up third or fourth in the championship which would have been a right result and i think i would have stayed but they cut their budgets and pat hen and had beat me in the championship so they kept him on and then sadly he went on to have his big accident. And then in 79 they did employ me again but I think I'd probably missed uh, 78 quite badly that year, didn't have factory bikes or anything else like that. So it would have made a difference. And I, I could have been quite famous, couldn't I? The only British Grand Prix winner, because yeah. no one else has done it yet. Right. Um, but that,
1: that's motorcycle racing, isn't it? That So that one corner, was it Beckett's or Maggots where you it crashed? It was first, first corner, Cops. So, mm. co- cops, because Williams crashed after Yeah, yeah he yeah. went to the next corner. Um, you know, you think about that, and that is the way motorcycle... It's a pretty cruel, nasty sport. And, yeah. you know, if you hadn't lost the front, going into that, you know, that one tiny mistake, uh-huh. your whole career could have been completely sure. different. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the same with any number of riders, that, yeah. that you know, it's all going pretty well, and then something happens, and it can be the tiniest thing. You mm. just, one second of your career, and it changes It changes the whole, changes the whole thing. And, and everyone um, comes
0: up to Crossroads in their life, and it should I take the Yamaha, should I take the Honda, should I go... So those things go on. But I think if you can look back, and you've enjoyed what you've done, and you've been reasonably successful about it. Then it's pointless bitching about it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I read that that year you were riding Barry's championship-winning bike, mm. which now is kind of a that would have been wheeled away into a museum and preserved. And yep. Um, that it's bike is actually now being wheeled around the
0: UK because it's owned by the Sheen family, and it's now doing the rounds. The 76 and 77 bike are doing the rounds, and that was the bike I used. Yeah, the 76 bike that he had, which. Uh, Was it as good as his bike in '77? I don't really know, but it it did me okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: the um, talking about what circuits MotoGP riders would like old circuits now, and although they wouldn't race there because it's too dangerous, I'm I'm convinced that they would all adore Spa, the the modern Spa. The modern Spa. Oh yeah, yeah, the modern uh, Spa. Because they raced Reading. Came there for a a classic event a few years ago and rode Schwantz's RGV 500. Yeah, I was there, and you were there, and 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 he just loved the track because you know a lot of these tracks now are very slow, and and the riders don't really like slow. You know, you go racing because you like going fast. You don't want to spend your whole time going from second to third, second to third, second Mm. to third. You know, you want to be shifting on, and somewhere like Spa, but you know, it's it's way too dangerous. When Um, when did they stop? 1990. So, I mean, you mm. raced on the old circuit. I raced
0: 77, 78 yeah. on the old circuit. And I, I remember
1: talking to you about that yeah. a while back, about drafting on the, because yeah. it was the old circuit was nine miles long and, and the average speed was 135 miles an hour. 137, 137 yeah. the lap record, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And the bikes would probably do 180. So, you know, that's, you were yeah. flat yeah. out for a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. um, and sort of slipstreaming on, Finicky two-strokes. You'd sort of up somebody's mm. exhaust pipes, aren't you? W- yeah. Wondering just checking whether if there's a little puff of smoke before yeah. it
0: stopped in front of you. Yeah, um, yeah and that I think if if so- someone asked me my the best race, I think I did finish fifth, but that was at Spa because I did love even the old circuit was just so special um, with the amount of slipstreaming that took place and everything else, and it was one of my better races, I guess you could say, from having a battle with I think it was Pat Henn and Johnny Scotto and. Giacomo and, Agostini and Agnera, and, yeah. and, uh, and stuff like that, but it was more like the Northwest 200 really because the straights were so long. You, you you had to plan. It was like a game of chess. Right? I don't want to be at the back. I want to actually be at the front when I go on that straight because they'll pass me and then I'll get back past them. And then. and so it was like working out th- after three slipstreams where you're going to end up by the time you get round to the, the finishing line and things like that. But yeah, I'm sure the riders would have loved doing that. And why is it still deemed to be too safe? Uh, too It's just too now? fast.
1: I mean, there's just I mean. Not like runoff as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So well, you're it, that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's too goals. fast. I mean, um, uh, uh, Blanchemont, which is the very fast left-hander, is coming back towards the the, the the end of the lap. I mean, you know, they would be 170 miles an mm. hour um, yeah. there now, yeah. and then uh, Eau Rouge and Radion. You know, there's not a lot of runoff there, mm. and you would struggle to actually make any. You know, there's a you know, the Red River, hence Eau Rouge, that, that runs through there and so on. So mm. um, I know a lot of, you know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's weird because I know a lot of the guys that race there, people like Rainey, Dewan and so on, they actually like racing at Spa and they loved racing at the Salzburg Ring, which was even more dangerous mm. than yeah, Spa. Yeah, rock face. Uh, where you're racing at 180 miles an hour up a valley, up the side of a valley with a rock face on one side and an arm core on the other and, a, and a pretty much a, a vertical drop I and mean, you're doing 180 miles an hour through a a switchback, you know. And, but the, all the riders adored it because it was just the biggest buzz of their lives. But they knew that they shouldn't be racing there. So it was a real, quite a weird period when that stuff was going on and, and they were like, you know, they loved racing there, but it's like, no, we've got to stop. Sure.
0: It's, it's the old cliche, the, the penalty's greater than the crime in motorcycle racing. Hence, that's why most people in motorsport, whatever sport you're into, whether it's Formula One or touring cars, they all watch Grand Prix motorcycle racing. I must admit, I think, it, I'm sure it was me that found the, the, the trick at Spa at La Source, but everyone copied me when uh, we worked out, or I worked out that if you went straight up the slip road, they'd turn around made out, you've got a brake problem, you could actually go over the start and finish line, which was after La Source, yeah. about 100 miles an hour faster than you would have done when you came out of the hairpin. So, and I managed to get it qualified right on the front road. told Barry and he told someone else, and in the end I ended up about 7th, because everyone else was doing exactly the same thing. The marshals must have won, and what on earth was going on, because everyone would be going up the slip road, looking down at their bikes and things like that, and then they'd be, the marshals would be ready to wave them on, and actually ju- you join the circuit about 120,
1: <laughs> a drag race. Instead of coming out of the hairpin
0: at 5 miles yeah. an hour, yeah. 10 miles an hour or whatever it was, yeah. yeah. So that was the scams that you could get away with. That was probably the romance that Rossi's t- spoken about. It that is yeah. a lovely word because you could find little loopholes in what you were doing and to me, my life was about probably blagging your way through your career and it would be whether it be putting your fan on the ferry at three metres when it was nine metres and then laughing when no one else could get on the ferry because everyone had done the same thing and hiding people in the back and just... Stuff that went on and and just having a giggle and finding little loopholes in things you could because Grand Prix racing, then there was no rules and regulations, it was four cylinders, six gears, do what the hell you like.
1: And and, and as a rider, as well, I was speaking to Neil McKenzie a few days ago, and he, when he made his debut, his Grand Prix debut at the British Grand Prix in 1984 at Silson, and he turned up there hoping to get a ride, and they were like, No, and you, but basically, he had to wait until they were like, until f- practice had already started. Yeah, it was and on first Friday lunchtime. Time. They were like well so and so from Germany hasn't turned up, so and so from Switzerland hasn't turned up, so so and so from Italy hasn't turned up. Yeah, you can have a ride. Mm. You know, from Friday afternoon. So everything was just very chaotic and 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 there was a sense of adventure you know, just getting to the race was an adventure, wasn't yeah. it? As oh, you said, it was. You, know, you know, whereas now ah. everybody's you know, they're on their private jets, they're straight out of there, straight home, back in the gym. Yeah, it's just You know, you can't say whether it's better or worse. I mean, the racing now is is 100 times better. Mm, I I mean, everybody thinks of those great 500 days and so on, but you look at a lot of the races, there were some some great races, but a lot of the races, you know, the field was split by... uh, Minutes. Yeah, Yeah, and and, and now, you know, the top 15 at Aston last weekend separated by 15 seconds. I mean, I mean, I, I think it's actually got to the point now where it's almost too close you know, uh, touching wood here, but, you know, when you've got a bunch of riders riding around six, seven together for the whole race, and one of them goes down in the middle of it, you know, you're in the lap, that's when mm. bad stuff happens, because you're in the yep. lap of the gods, you know, it doesn't matter how good safe, s- track safety is, doesn't ha- matter really how good riding gear is, you know, if you get hit by another bike, that is that is a real problem, and, and we are at that point where I think they have to go, we... Really don't want to make it any closer because mm. you know, yeah, we, we've introduced agree, yeah. a new danger here. Yeah.
0: It's actually quite difficult to kill yourself in a Grand Prix circuit nowadays unless you get hit by a bike, your bike or another bike, yeah, quite honestly, exactly. because the runoff areas yeah. are exactly where they are. Um, but yeah, it, it was so, so vastly different. It would be hard to explain to a modern day rider how it was, I think, because they. Couldn't imagine setting off from their home in Rimini, could they, and driving up to the British Grand Prix in no, a van with you know, you know the, the bikes Sadies in the back and a yeah with uh, with no brakes and things like that. It, but that was the adventure. The adventure was also going to the toilet, wasn't it? Because the facilities were diabolical. They were honest to God. How we didn't die of some horrible disease because it was just
1: foul. Well, it you was, famously blew up the, uh, the yeah, toilets. yeah we did. In, uh, we got in rid of the, the toilets.
0: We did. Yeah, we got rid of the toilets in a mattress simply because it was just so vile and disgusting that, that it wasn't didn't seem right so we went and set fire to him and that was again
1: You told me about Philip Coulon who was a privateer from around that time as well and, and Spa and I remember, remember doing the 24 hour race there as well and going for a wee and you, you, and you had to throw a bit of money in the lady's bucket to go and have a wee and, and um, you know, it was a 24 hour race you were doing that quite a lot quite expensive yeah. but back Philip Coulon who was pretty hacked off with doing this and so he, yeah. <laughs> he refused to, to give, give, put money in her back bucket to go into the loo and he said well you can't she said you can't go in, so you just peed in the bucket. Yeah, that was, that
0: was <laughs> the end of it. Yeah, because you don't walk around with a load of money when you're just about to go out a race. You're nervous as hell. You know, it's your yeah, third yeah, toilet. You, and... you go to the loo. So, but eight that times that was kind of how yeah. it was, and and it was dreadful. But we had something to talk about, I guess you'd say.
1: And, uh... Does the
2: uh, does the romance still exist? In the TT though?
1: I, I'm not sure it exists there much either, it's, because it's I think not, pressure, not as much The pressure, yeah. if you're a top guy, the pressure there now is, you know. Back in your day and my day, you would races were won by thirty yeah. seconds or yeah. a minute or yeah. ten seconds now they 're won by 0.3 seconds. you know the pressure on those guys is terrifying, you know yeah. obviously because we all know what ha- can happen over there that generally doesn 't happen in murder GP yeah. um, you know every time you go to the line at the Tt you, you really do know that you might not come back yeah and, uh, and that makes the whole thing very different. I mean you always knew that, but you know they know that they cannot. They've got to ride a hundred percent of mm. the time, every mm. inch of yep. the racetrack, yeah. from the start line to the finish line. It didn't used to be like
0: that. Did no, it? and the bonuses are very important for them and everything else. But I would say that the TT still has an element of that camaraderie in the paddock because people are all sort of wandering around with a bit of time to spare. That's one of the things the TT. You know, you'll have a day off in between, and often the riders will be out in the paddock and they'll be having a cup of tea together and uh, and things like that. So. But then, the teacher's a tough one, isn't he? Often, I I go there regularly and I get people come up to me and Matt will have had the same. What about if you put Peter Hickman or Joey Dunlop or John McGuinness on a Grand Prix bike and it's hard to tell them that they wouldn't even qualify. Mm. If you could convince Valentino Rossi or Mark Marquez, if you could somehow take an element of their brain out that said, this is ludicrous to ride around there, they'd be doing a 145
1: mile an hour lap. And that sounds really not rude. sure about that. Well, but. They'd but, be going a lot faster. Yeah, they'd be going faster. They're going faster. But, yeah. but you can't yeah, ever it, take it. That if they on. could commit themselves, if if Rossi decided. You know, right? I really want to win at TT. Mm. You know, a bit like sort of um, Alonso going to do Le Mans 24 hours. It would be the similar sort of thing. I don't think he ever will, but, but you know, yeah, he he would go fast if he committed himself to it. And um, this is Hickman's fourth year, isn't it? You know, yeah. Um,
0: um, uh, and stunning. Don't get me wrong. You know, those guys are the the pace he was going at, watching him slide a bike round corners that have got no runoff areas, and the the ultimate um, situation would be, you know, you could easily lose your life if get, get it wrong, but. And they are fantastic TT riders, but sure. it's a, a difficult thing. one because there's not many people, top-line riders, that want to risk that level. Mm.
1: I think when David Jeffries just before he did a, a year or two in Grand Prix, and, you know, he was a lovely guy and an amazing, amazing rider. I never, I never raced against him, but I rode on, on the road with him a few times, and he mm. he was he was pretty impressive just on open roads. And, uh, you know, but when he was at Grand Prix, obviously he didn't have a factory bike, but he was kind of at the back really and you know there's no shame in that no 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 no, 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 I'm not
0: Um, not knocking the guys for doing it but the TT is just so so unique um, and that's what makes the TT so special because the penalty is massively bigger than the crime and the guys that do it have to be fully committed to doing it have to want to do it um, and and unfortunately some of them make their livelihood from it. Uh, now is that unfortunate or not? I mean they still enjoy doing it, they don't, they're not forced to do it, they haven't got their arm twisted up the back. But it has now become another, you can now make a reasonably good living being a road racer.
1: Yeah, you think well, the, whereas you can't being a short circuit no, racer. very you know, rare. You know, unless you're... Shaky burn. Well, unless you're shaky burn or you know even in Grand Prix now and World Superbike there's a lot of people in there, you probably go at least halfway up the grid. Uh, in motor 3 or motor 2 before you find somebody that's making any money out of it, you know, and, and that's just the way of the world. Yeah. Uh.
2: Do you think your inbuilt kind of self-preservation held you back a little bit on the TT? Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, there was no question about that. I mean, I've always had
0: uh, an extra foot or two wherever I went at the TT, and, and, and whenever anyone came past me at high speed, then I used to go, get on with it, you know, good, good luck to you. Whereas on a short circuit, I'd just dig a bit deeper and have a crack at it. But the TT for me was, I had my pace, um, and, and that was it. And what did annoy me, probably more than falling off the British Grand Prix, I got third place in the Formula One or the senior race, and they got disqualified from it. And I, it was one of those odd occasions where I remember coming back over the mountain and someone gave me a pit board or something, plus two. Or one, and I did go faster than I felt I should have done, and... Maybe a little bit of dust came up out the curbs and places. Was it like the that? fuel tank? Alleged, alleged <laughs> uh, fuel tank. Oversight. I think that
1: might be the first time I interviewed you after that. Right. And I always remember you saying, I, "I don't get mad, I get even." Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't know how you got even, but you uh, probably did. I am sure you I did. Blew not up know. Vernon Cooper's yeah. car. Oh, we know we let his didn't. tires down. We let <laughs> Stephanie, Stephanie help. <laughs>
0: Stephanie, and my girlfriend Linda, <laughs> let his tires down at uh, Donington Manor. Um, but. That was really, really frustrating because I sort of felt as I'd put, stuck my neck out, risked my life and then got disqualified for something that was completely outrageous. It was 200ccs too big and I'd stopped twice and had five litres left in the tank or something like that. But I guess rules are rules. And
1: I
2: think there's a great line in your book um, about the best bit of advice you got given. Mm. For oh, for Mick Grant, yeah, yeah. And it
0: was absolutely true. Grant, he was a bit of a he- TT hero, been racing a lot longer than I had and he was one of the guys when I started doing the short circuits, that was my target to get to Mick Grant, and it would have been John Williams and John Newbold and all these guys that've been doing it and Paul Smart, and uh, get to the TT, and and kind of had a relationship with Mick. And I said, Mick, look, I'm really struggling. And I was riding a TZ, no, I was an RG 500. And I said, Mick, this thing is locked to lock. I've got the steering damper on full. I've had a handlebar break off because I've been hanging onto it too hard. Selby Straight, which you remember, was just like some kind sort of wild fairground ride, and the bike was going from curb to curb. And he said. I said, where do you go? What do you do? He said, down the middle of the road, right down the middle of the road. And I said, why is it smoother? He said, no, 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 the curbs and the trees are further away. <laughs> and that was quite a simple one. You've got a bit more time to jump off or whatever you had to do. So, yeah. yeah, that was a great piece of advice. But the TT, I always got on that ferry going home going,
1: Whew. Oh, I think, you do, I think every do, everybody did. I remember Steve Hislop saying that he, you know, the last time he came down the mountain in the senior at the end of the week, every time it was like, thank, you know, that's it for another year. Mm. And, you know, even Hislop, who a lot of people would argue as the greatest mm. TT rider of all time, mm. uh, just because of his speed and his commitment, uh, even he, it was a love-hate thing. I mean, it can't, you know, it's got to be a love-hate thing. Mm. And funnily enough, I, th- I think Hickman re- reminds me a bit of yeah. Hislop. When I see him riding around there, just that commitment...
0: Trust in himself. And yeah, ability, and just yeah. and just
1: that kind of short circuit because obviously Steve had kind of was a real short circuit guy as yeah. well, and so is Hickman, and, and and they bring that kind of you know, and I wouldn't really call Michael Dunlop a short no, circuit guy, no. so he kind of rides the TT in this kind of TT style, yeah, yeah. fighting the thing around, mm. and um, Hickman is just just. Wonderful to watch. But you the know, problem some is, some... And, and Pete Hickman's well aware of
0: it because he's a smart enough guy, is that there, there could easily be a pheasant sat in the road or a hare sat in the road yep. or uh, someone's left their hose pipe on and it's running across the track. They're the elements of the TT that you can never take out. And, and silly little things can happen like that. So sometimes maybe that uh, that trust you,
2: is risky, foolhardy in some ways, I guess you'd yeah. probably say. That's I guess the way that's I saw right. it anyway. Your biggest accident though came at not at the TT, but uh, at Donington.
0: Well, yeah, the one that probably was most likely to kill me was at Donington Park, and uh, that was down to Joey Dunlop. It was a, a, I can't even remember what the race meeting was. It's was quite a big event because I know Randy Mamola, Kenny Roberts were in it. Sorry, what? Transatlantic. Was it Transatlantic? Uh, yeah, probably was Transatlantic, yeah. And, um, and Joey were riding a great big Honda, whatever they were, 998 Honda Britain thing, Mr. Gear coming out the old hairpin. I had no chance, I just smacked in the back of him. Uh, I fell off down the road and Kenny Roberts completely ran straight over the top of my head. I think Randy probably ran over my legs or something like that. I don't know what happened. but um, And yeah, and that could have easily been, I wouldn't have known what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. I was out for about 10 minutes. Um, and I only recently, and the pictures are in my book I think, uh, recently someone gave me some photographs of me being, I was going to say, stretched off. I was in a blanket, someone must have got a blanket out the boot of their car, and Kenny and Randy and two marshals are uh, carrying me off in his blanket. I mean, I could have easily had spinal injuries or, or whatever, but the fact of the matter was I was just floating along in someone else, you know, in, in another world um, and with this... When it came around, I said to Kenny, what happened? What happened? He said, oh, well, Joey missed a gear. You went in the back of him. You went down. I ran over the top of your head. And, Thanks, Kenny. What happened, Kenny? What happened? I did it about ten times. <laughs> Finally, he gave me the helmet, and there is a big black tyre mark straight over the top of my AGV helmet, which he, I put it up for auction, and he still owns it now. Uh, I was going to say his ranch, but I think he sold it. Um, and he still talks about it and says, that's why I'm as stupid as I am, because he ran over my head. But, yeah, could would have been. And he, and he signed it? Signed it, yeah, and it went up for auction, and he bought it back for something like £2,000 or whatever.
2: Didn't he write something like, oh, I was here? I, I was
0: here, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I, co- I caused uh, his issues, I think it says,
2: something like that. Yeah.
0: So, exactly. But anyway, I was quite proud about it, because it meant I was in front of Kenny Roberts. Yeah. That, was, that was my claim to fame. He ran over me.
2: <laughs> I think we are running out a bit, bit out of time. Okay. So if we just touch on trucks, mm. because it's kind of... I think you were a truck driver for longer than you were... Yeah, I certainly was more successful racing a truck.
0: Um, And and a lot of people ask the question, how on earth did you end up racing trucks? Well, it was simple, Barry Sheen again, he had a contract with DAF on his bikes, they wanted him to race a truck. The other question is, that must be the wildest thing apart, a motorcycle and a truck they're actually very similar. A motorcycle does not want to go around corners. It wants to go straight, you have to coax it. You can't slam it into corners. You can't do anything erratic. With a five tonne ton truck was exactly the same. Coax it all the way, you have to turn it in early like you would a motorcycle. Get some grip and then drive it through the corners. So I found truck racing considerably easier than, than motorcycle racing in lots of ways, especially because I didn't go to hospital so much. So I think that element, that fuse, went up a few grades because I didn't really think I was going to die doing it, and so I, I felt I could give it more. But I found truck racing relatively easy. It got harder and harder as I got older and older, but um, in the early days, I couldn't believe how easy it was. And then there were some good drivers in it, a lot of car drivers, Martin, Brundle, Stig, Blomquist. Um, Abba Drummer. Yeah, uh, Alan Jones had a go at it, you know, and, and none of those guys really latched onto it because I think they were used to lots of grip and they
2: could just yeah. turn it And in you mate. were earning the same money as the DTM guys at that time? Yeah, right? I was
0: on the same contract, yeah, as the DTM guys. It was Which great. Is- as all my mates, I was packed up and they were still mucking around riding motorbikes and I was getting new Mercedes thrown <laughs> at me and free petrol and nice fat salary. It was great. In fact, I had a great scam going because the BP card that I had for 10 years, 11 years, uh, whatever I wanted, just went to BP station, got oil, petrol, whatever, and I used to fill my mates' cars up and then claim their VAT back. So every time I filled my car or someone else's, I used to get 20 quid worth of VAT back. Excellent. Uh, and didn't you um, negotiate a contract mid race? Yes, I did. It's, um, in Finland, Alstaro, Al uh, they wanted me to pull over. I couldn't win the championship. My teammate, Marcus Oosterreich, could. Um, Michael Goodside was the team manager for Mercedes at the time pull over, Steve, pull over, let him through, let him through with three laps to go. And I said, only if we come to an agreement on my contract for next year, which they were trying to chip before, and I got it back up and pulled over. (laughs) So I don't think many people have negotiated their contracts whilst on board
2: in a race, as far as I'm aware. Definitely not on a truck, I No, no, almost certainly not. (laughs) Um, excellent. I think you have to spend the afternoon signing books. And going I to do. Dinner, um, so. my,
0: uh, my book is out, um, The Parish Times. It wasn't the title I was going to choose. It's a I good thought, title, was right? Yeah, I guess it works. So I had kind of like Parish the Thought, as in Perish the Thought. But I uh,
1: thought you it, were going to call it The Village Idiot. It uh, so was you know, going to be
0: The Village Idiot, you're right. <laughs> there was a lot of names <laughs> being brandished around. But anyway, The Parish Times is out. Very pleased with it. I'd like to thank Matt Roberts that helped me write it and uh, all the people. In most books, you haven't had a chance to read it, Matt. It says, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've gone, sorry, sorry, sorry.
2: to so everyone <laughs> I've named, I've said sorry to because I have mucked too many people around over the years. And uh, I'm sorry. It's one of those books where you open the page and there's something will make you laugh or something happens on... Basically yeah. every page. You trouble seemed to <laughs> follow me around. I don't know what went on, really. It was
0: sort of a trouble magnet, it seemed. But it's not about racing. There is racing in it, but it gets me from, to another point of where things went horribly wrong.
2: And lots of great Barry Sheen stories as well. Yes, there is quite
0: a few in there, because uh, he, was, he was my, ne- my, my um, I guess, mentor. I sponged everything up, and I'd learned very, very quickly what to do and what not to do. Um, and I was in his slipstream off the track as well as on it.
2: Excellent. So you have to try and behave here tonight as well at your dinner. Yes,
0: we've got an evening here at the Royal Automobile Club, which I'm looking forward to. I've got Charlie Cox coming along and Susie Perry. So the old kind of BBC team team are all back together again tonight. So I'm sure there'll be one or two glasses of wine and we will pretend how good we were.
2: Yeah, (laughs) excellent. Well, um, we'll be back soon, I think. I'm not sure who the next guest will be, but I'm sure it'll be just as good. Um, I'm sure it will be more grown up than I am. (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't say <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll see you then thank you Steve thank Cheers. you Matt thank you very
0: well, much thank
1: you doing well.
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something
1: better well HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken
0: or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. Hello Fresh.